John. Um, it is really good to be um, sharing uh, and not be looking into a camera lens, but to see some people, some faces, albeit with masks on. Um, and it's great to be uh, with you at home, whether you're uh, alone sitting or whether you're in a hub. Uh, once again, welcome. You know, I've, I, I want to be honest with you and say that uh, Malachi chapter 2 has been a challenge for me over the last few weeks. Uh, it's not a light passage. Um, it's got some pretty sobering things that it speaks about. So much so that uh, I remember driving home one night a couple of weeks ago and I was thinking to myself, maybe I should just give Shabu a call and say, can you maybe pass this on to someone else? And uh, by the time I got home, another thought came to mind, and I'm sure it was from the Lord. Um, and I, was, I found myself asking the question, why? Why would you want to do that? Uh, and I think for me, the answer is that... Um, this passage has been really confronting to me personally. This passage speaks about leadership, poor leadership. Uh, as part of the leadership team here at Canterbury Gardens, it speaks to me. It's a challenge to me. It goes on to talk about marriage. I am a, a husband. And I began to reflect on my shortcomings as a husband. Again, it, it, it spoke to me. It speaks of divorce. I have uh, great friends, even family, that have experienced the pain of divorce. We have those amongst us in our church family that have likewise. And so I'm aware of the sensitivity around these things. I just want to point out to you that as a teaching team, we don't stand up here week after week uh, as the poster boys of what we're preaching about. I want you to know that the things that I share with you this morning don't come from someone who's got it all sorted. It comes from someone whose desire is to present God's word. And our prayer as a team, as a leadership, is that God's word will speak to you. So let's, let's move ahead together. There are plenty of both good and bad examples of leadership in the Bible. From Genesis onwards, there are examples to follow and just as many to reject. And with all the lessons that could be drawn out from these examples, is it any wonder there are so many books written on the topic? I think perhaps Malachi 2 points to a habit that could hold us all in good stead in this regard. If we were to do what the leaders we read about here weren't doing, we would go a long way to being the leaders, in fact, the disciples that God calls us to be. There is nothing that undermines an organisation, a company or a government more quickly than poor leadership. Leadership that lacks a moral compass or is governed by popular opinion instead of its own convictions will eventually be found out. Leadership where there is corruption or a lack of integrity or when leaders hunger and thirst for power, then trouble is sure to follow. Perhaps not overnight, but at some point where leadership loses its way, those it leads are the ones who will invariably suffer. And it should come as no surprise that this is also true among God's people. I'm convinced that more and more as I go on in this life, that the direction, growth, the testimony of the local church is heavily influenced 
by the leader's ability to show humility, grace under fire, to have a passion for the Lord, a love for God's word, and a commitment to their own families. I know that it is God who will grow his church, and I praise him for the fact that often despite our own shortcomings, he continues to strive and to bless his people. Yet the biblical records show that his model to bring about stability, wisdom, godliness, comfort, joy, and even correction is seen within the fellowship of the local church. And for the majority of us, that's where we sit. Church history points to a powerful parallel between dysfunctional leadership in the local church and it losing its way. If anyone has ever witnessed the disintegration of a local church, you will know it's a distressing, even soul-destroying experience, and some never quite recover from it. I would venture to say that these occurrences, almost without exception, either start with or are allowed to fester by the leadership. Where a church or ministry leadership loses its way, the ripple effect can easily become a tidal wave. It's like when we drop that stone, that rock, in a pond. The ripples affect the whole surface of the pond. Malachi addresses this in chapter 2. But as we journey through, keep in mind the lessons that unfold are relevant to anyone who leads others. So if you're an elder or pastor, I hope and pray you take note. If you're a deacon or what we might call a member of COM, be aware of the impact your leadership has on those around you. If you're a leader in any of the ministries across our church fellowship, I pray that you would take heed of what Malachi is saying here. Even if you hope someday to take up a leadership role, this is for you. Friends, if you're a parent, you're a leader who teaches those that are special to the Lord. The first nine verses point to the failure of the leaders to be faithful in fulfilling their role before the Lord. So it comes as no surprise that as we enter verses 10 to 16, the people as a whole are called out for their unfaithfulness toward each other. Verse, first, four nine, uh, first nine verses in Malachi chapter 2 is... Um, as I said, one of the passages that should cause any church leader to take stock. If we read this passage and do not reflect on our own walk with the Lord, then perhaps we need to reevaluate why we're in leadership at all. If a passage like this doesn't cause a leader to examine their heart motive, mo, or, or motives, their walk with the Lord and relationship with others, I, I don't know what passage will. Listen again in verse 1 to the charge God makes against the priests. He says they are no longer listening and thus taking heart to God's word. Everything else this passage says flows from this statement. The listening Malachi speaks to is not the kind that goes in one ear and out the other. That was the kind that I had at school. This, the listening is about taking to heart what you're hearing. 
I mean, I'm sure the priests read the scriptures, but it failed to have an impact on them. It didn't produce fruit or bring about change at the heart level. If we do not listen to God, we cannot really know him. If we do not listen, how will we know his will or direction? If we do not listen, what kind of leaders are we? While it is true many of us are leaders within ministry or our own homes or even in the secular world, in truth we're all followers to some degree or another. We all listen to things and these things that we listen to structure our thinking, our priorities and our fears. So the message for those responsible to lead God's people is, who is it that you're listening to? Who is it that you listen to the most? Because this will directly shape your thinking, decision-making ability and your opportunity to lead well. But can I add that this is also a question that every Christian should be asking themselves. Friends, whose wisdom do you seek? Where do the values you hold dear stem from? Whose influence forms the response you have to the world around you? True wisdom is not found in the opinions of those on social media, the internet, or even a pastor, unless it is grounded in biblical truth. I actually grieve over the undertones of fear, of turmoil and even anger that this pandemic and the vaccination debate bring to the hearts of people. I wonder have we forgotten just who our God is? We've not, have we not experienced his faithfulness before? Do we really believe the words we say when we say God is sovereign, God is in control? Is this vaccination debate so black and white that we should think less of those who have a different conviction? Can I ask you, are our responses faith-based or man-based? Fear will control us if we listen to all the voices around us without filtering them through the truth of God's word. The Apostle Paul calls out fear for what it is and he points to love as the antidote. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 17, John says this, By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is, so also are we in the world. Therefore, sorry, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out for fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Christ's love should compel us to love each other and be united through the things that bind us together, not look for those things that might divide us. Well, this lack of listening to or applying God's word to their own lives results in a number of tragic circumstances for the priests. So Malachi contrasts where the leaders should be in order to point out what they so lacked due to no longer listening to God. Go with me to verse four, and you'll see that we're, uh, sorry, verse five, and you'll see that we're told they lacked fear. In fact, they lacked, lacked awe of God. They had lost their awe of God. 
Verse 7, they were incapable of bringing God's truth into the lives of the people. And perhaps most tragic of all, we're confronted with the words of verse 8, where we're told they caused others to stumble due to the false, misleading nature of their teaching. Like the blind gods leading the blind, as Jesus called it. But this failure has not gone unnoticed, nor will it go unpunished. The truth is we're always accountable for our actions. So God, we're told in verse 3, is going to send a curse on them. And it's pretty graphic, that description in verse 3 of what's going to transpire. The term dung refers literally to the offal of the animals used in the sacrificial system, which was normally removed and burned outside the city walls, according to Exodus 29. We might use the term today, God's going to rub their noses in it. We come down to verse 9 and it makes it clear that these leaders will be held to account for their unfaithfulness before God and his people. Look what it says. And so I've made you despise and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. You know, I wonder, church, do we, do we appreciate the fact that God doesn't actually need us? God doesn't need the church to be God. He's not somehow made more complete by our worship. Yes, he's glorified through it, but it doesn't make him any less God. The church exists primarily for our benefit. He's no less king of king and lord of lords whether the church excels or not. In fact, where the testimony of a church brings dishonour, it will be held to account. If it means it is held up to ridicule in order to refine it, that's what will happen. Even if it means removing its lampstand, God will do it. So the warning is clear. Listen. Now, as I was thinking about this, the question that arises as I read this passage, as I considered the importance of listening, of heeding, of obeying God's word, the question that arises, what causes us to stop listening? What causes us to lose sight of what our faith is based on? What stops any one of us from taking what God says to heart? Well, firstly, I think we can do that by seeking to listen to what we're comfortable with. Just tell me about God's love. I, I, I don't want to hear about the punishment stuff or um, judgment stuff. Just tell me about God's love. Or, there's not enough meat here. Give me more meat. Or, another person might come up straight afterwards and say, this is too hard to understand. Can you just make it easier for us? Well, why are we going through the Old Testament? The, the New Testament makes much more, is much more relevant to us. Can we spend more time in the New Testament? 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to, to myths. And I can't help but feel that we're in a season, perhaps like no other, where myths control our thinking if we're not careful. There's so much going on in this world. We can find out so much over the net. We need to be able to filter these things through God's truth. Well, secondly, as we've already mentioned, we can stop listening to God by naively listening to and believing the wrong advice. Oh, that we would be like those Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who actually sought out God's word to confirm that what they were hearing was consistent with his truth. We can also stop listening to God by thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. That's called pride. That subtle attitude that sometimes we can fall into the trap, trap of, and, of thinking, I'm actually the smartest person in the room. Maybe you're really familiar with the passage being spoken about or you see your role as being the one to pick apart what is said. One of my favourite memory verses is 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. I'm sure you've heard me mention it before. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Ask yourself this question. Do you listen to God's word expectantly with a searching heart or judgmentally looking for what you might be able to criticise? Fourthly, and we all know this, we stop listening because of sin. It causes us to be estranged from God. Sin puts up a barrier between us and God. It reduces our ability to hear that still, small voice because all we want to listen to is self. It should come as no surprise to any of us that when a leadership at any level fails in its obligations, the people they are responsible for are also going to lose their way. And that's what happens here in Malachi. As we head to verse 10 to 16, we find out that the people themselves are unfaithful toward each other. So time and again, the word unfaithful comes up in this section of Malachi as the people are accused as a whole for failing in their relationships with each other. Now, I just want to do something a little differently um, and start off in the last verse of this section, verse 16. It's not normal, I know, but our... Our Bibles will have a significantly different rendering depending on what your translation is as you look at verse 16. And I think it's helpful to clear that up before we go any further. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 is a really difficult verse to translate. Now, I don't say that because I'm a Hebrew scholar. I didn't look at the original languages and realise this is, this is a tricky passage to translate. Um, as part of my study, I read through a different, few different translations and it struck me that there are a few different renderings of how this verse is, uh, is translated. And so I started doing a bit of research. The words that many Christians know from Malachi 
even if they aren't aware that they actually come from Malachi, is this phrase. Many of you who have been Christians for a long time will know this phrase. I hate divorce, says the Lord God Almighty. Malachi 2.16. One of the most popular translations that states that is the original NIV from 1984. Now, Hebrew scholars, I found, do not all agree with how this verse is best translated. The Hebrew apparently is clunky and difficult to get clear, and translating into English only exacerbates this further. In fact, the contributor to the ESV study Bible on Malachi says the two main alternate translations proposed for this verse are strongly disputed by evangelical Hebrew scholars. So, as I said, while the original NIV says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God Almighty, the updated version released in 2011 says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord God Almighty. New American Standard says this. It kind of ha has a little bit of both in it. For I hate divorce, says the Lord the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of Armies. The ESV, as John just read to us, says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I'm not pointing this out to show you that there's inconsistencies in the Bible. Of all the hundreds, even thousands of verses, um, here's one that's difficult to translate. The point is that to build a doctrine on this verse and to treat it as some have, as the unforgivable sin is to do, I believe, a disservice to God's word. Sometimes, well-meaning Christians have counseled that a married couple should stay together at all cost, no matter what, and it is that that we honour God in. I'm not of a view that an abusive relationship, for instance, is something that we would expect people to continue in. And I, I know that God would not want that. He doesn't want violence. We're sensitive to the fact that some of you listening have had to live through this. Some have been made to feel more shame or embarrassment than they deserve. Do you know... Proverbs 6 and 16 has a list of things, other things that God hates. This is what Proverbs 6 and 16 says God hates, among others. He hates pride. God hates lying. He hates the shedding of innocent blood. He hates feet that are quick to rush to evil. He hates a false witness and he hates someone who stirs up conflict in the community. But, you know, somehow, though Proverbs clearly said God, says God hates these things, somehow I think we're, we're more willing to give people a pass on it. Perhaps they don't hold the same weight as when someone says God hates divorce. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And as someone has well said... It's difficult to find something God hates in the scripture that he also gives dispensation to in certain circumstances. Divorce, we know, is tolerated in the scriptures. It's not God's desire, 
but it's tolerated. Jesus himself says it was tolerated in the Old Testament because of hardness of heart, but it was still tolerated. Jesus says in Matthew 19, divorce is acceptable because of sexual immorality. Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians chapter 17 that abandonment by a non-believing spouse is further grounds for divorce. Now, having said all this, please don't think I'm saying that divorce is not a big deal in God's eyes. Please don't think breaking the marriage covenant with God as your witness is not a big deal. Because we know God is deeply grieved by all that goes on in the background of a marriage where divorce becomes a reality. It grieves the Father heart of God. So returning to verse 10, we find the community is confronted with its unfaithfulness toward each other in that they have profaned the covenant of their fathers and the sanctuary of the Lord. The term sanctuary of the Lord could mean the temple, as they come to worship in the temple, they're profaning that worship, but it could just as easily be referring to the community of God's people that is being profaned. Hence, we read about reference to marrying the daughter of a foreign god, undermining the testimony of God's people, the community of God's people. But either way, the message is fundamentally the same. In our private lives, both secret or blatant sin affects the community as a whole. In effect, they were treating their heritage with contempt by not respecting the covenant relationship of their fathers. Nor were they honouring their high calling as the people of God, a people who worship the one true God. Disobedience to his word, a lack of awe of the one true God, and hypocrisy in the presentation of their supposed holiness led to those ripple effects throughout the people, and no one was left unaffected. You know, it's true, we may well be able to hide our true selves from each other, certainly for a period of time, but there is no hiding from him. We just finished our study through the book of Hebrews. My favourite verse in Hebrews, um, it's a confronting verse, but it often helps me in my walk with the Lord. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nor ultimately does sin only impact ourselves. That's what the New Testament writers mean when they speak of the effect of yeast on the whole batch of dough. It infiltrates the whole batch. There's no getting away from it. Sin never stays private. It will eventually have repercussions on those around us. I wonder how much do we ever consider our walk with the Lord has repercussions on the broader church community? How much do we think about that private sin having an impact on the corporate worship of God's people? I mean, it seems obvious that we'll with the leaders. It seems obvious if the leaders are, are way off mark, are living in sin, it's going to affect the people. But have you considered your ability to affect change, either positively or otherwise? That's what the imagery of the bot. That's why the imagery of the body is so powerful in helping us to see we are all in this together. 
And Paul points and he uh, points out that the church is like a body. Everyone does their part and the body functions well. When something in the body is amiss, when something in the body is not working, when it's diseased or sick or not able to function, the whole body suffers. That's what we're seeing here in Malachi. Specifically, we're told of the disobedience in marrying foreign women. Now, this has nothing to do with the race. It has nothing to do with their colour or their language, but everything to do with the faith, with the things that these women bring into the relationship. Throughout the Old Testament, where God's people intermarried with the nations around them, it was they that were led astray. Perhaps Solomon is the greatest example of this, isn't he? He was a man whose wisdom was renowned worldwide. But he was brought undone by the amount of foreign wives that he collected. Nehemiah chapter 13 and 26 speaks to this. It says, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the nations, there was no king like him. People travelled from around the world to listen to Solomon, his wisdom and his answers to questions. And yet, Nehemiah goes on to say, though he was loved by God and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women, by the things that they brought into the marriage that were not of the Lord. Paul calls it being unequally yoked, doesn't he? You may also be familiar with these words, bad company corrupts good habit. And that's a pretty truthful saying. Can I just say to you young people, perhaps you're yet to find the right one. Maybe you're not looking, that's fine. Maybe you have an expectation that someday you will. Don't compromise in this area. I have a, uh, my eldest daughter is in her late 20s and sometimes as I'm walking her out to the car as she's going back home up to Bendigo, I pull her aside and I say, um, Mally, don't sell yourself short. You wait for the right one. If God has someone for you, you don't have to push to try and find relationships outside of God's will. In fact, don't even start going out with someone who doesn't share your love for Jesus because once a relation starts, it's very hard to pull it back. And the pattern is generally that they will draw you away, not that you will convert them. And the reason for that is that, that that's not God's plan. That's not, what God, that's not the kind of evangelism that God wants to see you involved with. God's plan for you is not to go and start dating a non-Christian so that you can bring them for the Lord. I know that happens. God is gracious. But generally speaking, you are the one who will be led astray. To make matters worse, the people are going through the motions of offering their sacrifices to God. We look there in verse 14. They bring their sacrifices to the altar and they, they get a sense that God's not there with them, that God's not accepting and we get this question again as we, as we hear throughout Malachi, the people saying, why doesn't he? Why is not God accepting our sacrifice? Why is he not hearing? I mean, it seems ludicrous to us. You guys are marrying foreign women and you know it's not acceptable and yet you bring your offerings to God and then you're crying out to God, why? 
Do you ever think that as a Christian on your wedding day, God was witness to your union? He was there. I want to talk to your husbands for a moment. Because though certainly in the society we live in, it's just as true for a wife, yet God is speaking to husbands first and foremost here. Whether you are a husband now or you hope to be someday, God is witness between the covenant you yourself made to the wife of your youth. I find it, uh, I've never really noticed it before as I was reading this, but did you note that it also says there's a portion of his spirit in that union? That's incredible to think about. God's spirit has a, has a role to play in that union. You know, we are masters at explaining away our sins, aren't we? to rationalise our wants and desires. We're so good at it. I've heard things along these lines over the years, and I'm sure you have too. People trying to justify their stance in terms of the struggles in their marriage. I don't have the feelings for my spouse like I used to. Like feelings are to be our guide. We've drifted apart. We're not the same people we used to be. We just got married so young. We, we didn't have an opportunity to experience the world before we got married. I'm just so unhappy in this marriage. Someone really close to me um, was, ma- uh, was divorced and remarried and they said to me one day, uh, perhaps because they thought I was sitting in judgment of them, even though I wasn't, I just happened to be present, but they came up to me and said, I want you to know how happy I am. It can't be wrong if I feel as happy as I am now. Some people describe feeling trapped. I mean, my wife just doesn't do the things she used to do. Kids get in the way and life gets busy. It's not the same as it was. I just need my own space. I feel like I'm the only one trying to make this relationship work. I don't feel appreciated. Don't you understand? We're not the same people anymore. But you know what? Despite all the feelings, accusations and justifications, he's the same God who was witness to your vows and he holds us accountable. I don't want to make it seem frivolous and nor do I want to place burdens on people that they can't carry. But if this is your space, I grieve that you're in this. The range of emotions you must be going through must be so tough. But I do want to encourage you with these thoughts. If God values marriage so highly, if God was witness to your marriage... Do you not think that just maybe, maybe he wants to help you through the process, through the challenges of your marriage? Friends, if you find yourself wondering how to get out, how to escape, or if any of the thoughts I've just mentioned happen to be rolling around in your head at the moment, 
He's your first port of call. Get on your knees before your heavenly father. Pour out your heart to him. And don't be ashamed to ask for help, to reach out for help. Again, can I say pointedly to your husbands, men, stand up, take the lead, be self-sacrificial. You be the ones to forgive. Be honest, confess your sin and show grace towards the wife of your youth. Our marriages have such an opportunity to impact the broader community and even more particularly our own children. We're told there that God is seeking godly offspring, so guard yourselves in the spirit. Friends, we need to be mindful of our spouse, seek their good above our own. Focus on what you can give, not simply receive. Love has, God has loved you unconditionally. Choose to see the good, not faults in your partner. Focus on what you can control. You know, if you were to go to my wife and ask her, what are Mike's faults and uh, shortcomings? Um, she would be well justified to say, well, how much time have you got? I, I, as I said earlier, I'm not saying these things because I've got it all together, because mine is necessarily a perfect marriage, like you were all in the process of sanctification, of getting things right. Now, I know I'm showing my age, but Don Francisco sings a song about marriage with these words in it. And, and many, many years ago, my wife and I um, got a tape, and that'll tell you how old it was, of these Don Francisco songs. And Don Francisco, um, by his own admission, had a lot of troubles in his marriage. And he sings quite a number of songs about marriage. There's one that has particularly spoken to us over the journey. Let, I'm not going to sing them because I don't want to turn everyone off, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to um, speak the words of these three stanzas. Don Francisco says this, I could never promise you on just my strength alone that all my life I'd care for you and love you as my own. I've never known the future, I only see today. Words that last a lifetime would be more than I can say. But the love inside my heart today is more than mine alone. It never changes, it never fails, it never seeks its own. And by the God who gives it, and he lives in me and you, I know the words I speak today are words I'm going to do. And so I stand before you now for all to hear and see and promise you in Jesus' name the love he's given me. And through the years on earth and as eternity goes by, the life and love he's given us are never going to die. Beautiful words. So as we conclude, can I take you back to the start of Malachi chapter 2? There is no, church, uh, no priest, no church leader, no matter how godly, knowledgeable or wise, who will lead perfectly. They will make mistakes. They will fail to live up to your expectations they will forget things. There'll be times when they don't follow through on everything you'd like them to. They may even be hypocritical at times. Perhaps they don't always listen to that still small voice of the Lord. Or they make decisions that you find difficult. 
They're going to say things that in hindsight they wish they could take back. You know why I say this? You know why I can confidently say this happens? Because they're just like you and I. They're just men and women like you and I. That God has called to a particular role. But there is one who is worthy to be worshipped. One who does not disappoint. That will not fail. What he says he will do and what he promises will come to pass. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And he calls you and I to come to him. That we might grant, be granted direct access to the Father. Be called children of God. I mentioned at the start of an attitude of godly leadership in Malachi 2 and I hope, though I don't really need to repeat it, I I will because I know that repetition is important in the learning process and I for one still need to be reminded of this so I figure most of you are going to be the same. Godly leaders listen to God and take to heart. They apply what they learn. And this is true, surely, of all of us. Friends, please please pray for the leaders the church needs. Across our country, the church needs godly men and women who will lead well, Ones who will listen to, apply and teach God's word in spirit and truth. As those who do not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of God. Pray they will be those who act justly, who love mercy and who walk humbly with their God. Bear in mind that the impact of your sin, my sin, has on both individuals but also in a corporate sense, the church family. We have a corporate responsibility toward each other. So, Paul says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Though not having experienced it myself, like most of you, I've seen friends and family go through divorce and the hurt loss, the sense of rejection, the guilt and burdens that many carry into the future are so very real. Yet the message of the gospel is that Christ has broken the power of guilt and shame. He has overcome all our failures, mistakes and the sin that so easily entangles us. Even divorce is a hurt he can bring healing to. As a pastoral team, We would love you to reach out, that we could begin a journey with you if you feel you need that help before the Lord. Church, my prayer is that our marriages will testify to God's faithfulness as we remain faithful to each other. That where there is hurt, we will find healing. Where there are tears, they'll be wiped away. And where forgiveness is required, it will be found and grace will abound. 
Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, And while we've looked at Malachi chapter 2 here, uh, it's such a challenging verse, uh, passage, chapter for so many of us. Lord God, I pray that you would continue to raise up men and women across this country, even in our own setting, who will lead well, who will love you above all else, who will listen and take to heart your word, who will apply it in their own lives and seek to boldly proclaim it into the lives of others, that you may be glorified. Lord God, as we consider the uh, marriages that are represented in this, our local setting, I pray that you would be guarding our hearts and minds, that we might honour you in them, that we might recognise that this is a serious covenant relationship we have and you were present on that day. I pray for those who are doing it tough, who are finding it hard in this season. Oh God, may you speak to them. May they open their hearts to the comfort uh, of your spirit. May you reveal to them what it is to be able to forgive, to serve, to be a blessing to others through the lives that they live. We pray these things in your name because you hear us and you answer. In Jesus' name.